Hey, this is David from the Service Design Podcast with a brief message before we get into the episode. I would just like to promote the service design training that Stina and I will be giving in May in Belgium. Go to servicedesignpodcast.com slash training to find out more. Thank you and on to the show. Welcome back to episode 32 of the Service Design Podcast. Today is the second episode in a series where we speak to the 2018 winners of the Service Design Awards. Today we speak with Giulio Fagliolini and Kostya Pashalidis, who won Best in Public Sector. They talk about the importance of data visualization and the value that business design brought to a project for the West Midland Police. Good afternoon, uh, Giulio and Kostya. We're speaking to you as uh, winners of the Service Design Award 2018. For all our listeners, could you please uh, introduce yourselves? Uh, maybe let's start with uh, Giulio. Hi there. I'm Giulio. I'm designer, senior designer at Fjord. I've been here for a few years, and I'm very glad to be here in this podcast. All right. And Kostya? Hi, everyone. I am a service design lead. I have been working at Fjord, which is where the project was when we won it. And uh, now I am a freelancer service designer. Okay. okay. And uh, you guys won the award for your project Developing a Police Force Digital Experience for Citizens. Can you tell us a little bit more about this uh, project? What was it about? So this all started now a uh, few years ago. <laughs> it's actually quite funny how... We tried to submit the project a couple of times, but since it wasn't live or like talking with the client, we actually wanted to be a little bit more sure on the life of the project before actually submitted it for an award. So now it's a little bit of time ago, but it all started when the West Midland police started this transformational change in which they started looking also at new ways of getting in touch with it public and they came to us to understand how they could do that better so the first phase was really helping the police to define new ways of getting in touch with the public and to answer specifically to non-emergency calls so yeah and part of that was that uh, the police was going from austerity measures and because of the austerity measures they wanted to cut down cost and the uh, West Midland police uh, wanted to do something more better for the customers and for the citizens in some way. So rather than just reducing the cost and digitizing their call center, they thought that they can actually improve the experience for the citizens, So the, which was part of the project. Okay, so does that mean that it's actually it started as more of a, a research phase on what they could do better? Or what was the exact question that they asked you? How can they digitize their call center by improving the experience for the citizens at the same time and also reduce the cost of operating call centers. Mm -hmm. Yes. And how long time ago was that that they asked this question? That was in 2015. Okay. okay. Mm -hmm. So actually 
I can imagine uh, sending it in for an award uh, several times uh, can be a little frustrating, but I do think the story that you're going to be able to tell today is going to be much more interesting. Of course, now this project has been alive and you know what, what the results are. So we're curious all about, uh, about that. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the makeup of the, the team working on this project? Yeah, sure. Probably Kosti is the best person to do this. But yeah, it was initially there was a service design lead that was Kostya leading the project. I was working as a visual designer. There was an interaction designer, a visual design intern, a service designer, and a business designer. But probably it's worth saying that here at Fjord, especially in a research project, we try to have a team that is representing all the disciplines that we have within the company. But at the same time, everybody is working on every activity, especially in a research phase. So mm -hmm. visual designer, service designer, business designer, we're all working within the research. Everybody looking at a slightly different angle to what the research was. Yeah. Yeah, and I think for this project, we had uh, we were trying to do something unique that hasn't been done before, at least from your perspective, when we were merging uh, qualitative research with quantitative research. And uh, because Julio was an excellent uh, data visualization uh, expert, he managed to focus on the aspect of data visualization of our quantitative data. And at the same time, our service designer were focused on the qualitative data and how we can merge it together. So that was kind of like the setup of our project. Mm -hmm. So you, you answered one question I already had. It's in, in a research phase, how do you really set a, a visual designer to create value? And you already talked about yeah, visualizing data. Can you say, explain a bit what's the difference that you can make by taking time to visualize data? I think uh, there is like, I want to add a small introduction to here and why it was really important for uh, our project to have data visualization. When we were starting engaging uh, with the public, we started making interviews. We, based on the time frame of the project, we want we could have talked to ten, up to fifteen people of users. But when we start talking with them, we realize that the complexity that goes when you're dealing with victims, especially the complexity in the victim itself. Like for example, we were talking with domestic abuse, and uh, most of the cases of domestic abuse that we managed to talk to were women. But when you start seeing the division that's happening within the victims, you have male domestic abuse, female domestic abuse, and within that you have psychological domestic abuse and physical domestic abuse. So whenever talking about victims, it gets really, really complicated. And additionally to that, it is every one of them are really important. So you need to understand all the peculiarity that they were having. So having just qualitative data wouldn't have been enough for us to understand the complexity of the problem we were trying to solve. As a result, we managed to merge both of these cases, having quantitative data and collecting the information that we need about all these peculiarities of different uh, victims that were contacting uh, the police force and combined together with the qualitative data of the information that we have a little bit more in details. It's kind of like what made this project, at least from my perspective, from a setup point of view, more interesting, I guess. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit more on how you did that? Like, what's, how did you manage to analyze all that uh, data of all the different victims and make a structured yeah, insight report out of that? Yeah, so initially 
Actually, another thing that is probably worth saying before going more into detail is the fact that the police was actually collecting already a lot of data around the phone calls. Obviously, it's not data including the names that has been shared with us, but it's general outcome of the calls, how long would the call last, if there were suspects, if the caller was at risk. So there was quite a big effort from the police in the previous year to collect all this data that you know, data by definition is quite abstract. So start to visualizing this data was actually a really good thing also for them. The first time that we came up with a visualization and we brought it back to a workshop was actually a very good way of start discussing this data that otherwise would be somewhere probably locked into an Excel file. And at the same time, was even for ourselves, was a really an easier way to start to understand a topic that is actually huge. If you think about all the crimes and all the problems for which people could call the police within the UK. So what we did as a first thing was really bringing this data into visualization tools and start exploring. So exploratory visualization, try, let's say, time by time to visualize it in a different way and see what this visualization could actually offer to us more than actually just reading the insights. Because while qualitative research gives you the why and allows you to understand a little bit better the reason why things happen, when you have, as Kostya was saying, when you have to understand so many things and this scale is actually only data that can provide you this this scale of understanding regarding so many topics, so many crimes, and so many different situations. And we are designers, so we are not, when we start a project like this, we are not experts in police. I mean, I might have worked on a similar project before with similar characteristics, but it, it's a totally new topic. So visualization for us has really been a sort of cartography of the topic, if you want. A mapping exercise that allowed us to understand better what the topic was and what the problem were and similarities between different situations. What, yeah. Yeah. Can you give us an example of, a, of an insight that you gained from visualizing data and how did it look? I know that's hard <laughs> to explain it on a podcast, but <laughs> I'm sure our listeners are curious as well. One of the cases was, for example, when we started mapping all the different type of reason why people were calling and we started bucketing them in this uh, circular visualization. So there were a lot of streams that were starting, for example, from public safety, going to missing person, insecure premises, sudden death, for example. And we started linking, for example, in which of all these cases, there were cases in which evidence was collected we started visualizing these maps that basically were representing all the routes through which evidence could have been collected. And while at the beginning, we didn't expect to be something really common to many different crimes, evidence collection, it actually applies to basically any possible call. In any possible call, there is an instance in which the police could have an occasion to collect evidence. So we started understanding that these journeys were not specific journeys, so a journey of evidence collection, but evidence collection should have been a sort of atomized presence within other journeys. I don't know if it's clear. It's quite difficult to, <laughs> to describe these kind of maps 
through imagine, audio. Yeah, imagine basically what we got as an insight is that people are calling for an administration call related to just asking for an officer or anything like that. And, and, and that can end up collecting evidence. And that is like one of the major insights we got from looking at the information from that point. Mm-hmm. So I'm a bit of a, a tool nerd <laughs> and I'm curious uh, what set of tools do you use for this, for the data collection, analyzing the data, but also visualizing this data very practically? What did you work with? Sure. So, well, the data was actually already quite clean when we received it. So the police did a really good job in collecting this data. Uh, when we got it, was already in Excel shape. That was the first, uh, let's say, format in which we got it. And we started, you know, skimming through the rows and columns. But when it came to visualizing the data, we were actually using uh, Rograph, which is a free tool available online, which allows you basically to visualize and is a sort of interface, I don't know, how much our audience will know around data visualization, but the main language that you use to work on data visualization on the web is called D3. And it's actually quite, it's not as easy to use, to develop, but this tool, Rograph, allows you, is a sort of interface for D3. So allows you to create quite complicated data visualization, but without requiring you to write any line of code. And it allows you also to download it in a sort of format that is openable by Sketch and by Illustrator. So it's also, uh, you can further play on the visualization within Illustrator. Okay, cool. Okay. That sounds like a real practical tip for... Uh, yeah. For- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the best thing is that the tool also runs locally. So you basically copy and paste the data within the browser, but it doesn't get sent anywhere. It remains in your machine and everything is done within your machine. So even if the data is confidential, you're sure that it's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. That seemed to be a uh, pretty important uh, topic in uh, in your project. <laughs> yeah, I actually, uh, like, quite funny. Uh, I can actually assure that this happens because the tool has been developed by the University of Milan where I did my master's degree, and I was actually uh, working within the research lab that developed this tool. So uh, I know it by myself, like I've seen it with my eyes that the intent, even in building the tool, was building tools that actually uh, give you the ownership of the data that you work with, and they don't send it anywhere. Yeah, great. I also um, saw that you were talking about data-infused journeys in the article I saw on the SDN website. Does that mean that the visualization of the data that you analyzed, that you also made uh, customer journeys? Or how should we see this journey mapping process in your project? So what we called data-infused journeys was the result of an exercise that we did during one of our workshops. So we started defining what the possible journeys were with in, in this big workshop with the police and the partners of the police, some of the citizens. So try to map all the possible ways in which, for example, a case of shop theft could have happened. 
And what we call data-infused journeys is the next steps once we got all these different paths of the experience, which could be, for example, is the caller at risk? Are there any suspects? Was wants the caller to see the police? So all the different variables along this journey. When we started plotting data on top of that, we started also seeing which variables are the most likely to happen. Mm-hmm which allowed us to cater not only because some of the time I felt like there is the risk to cater only for the biggest of this variable, you know, for the experience that is most likely to happen. But in this case, having all the range of experiences provided by the data, so not only what came out of the mapping exercise, but these were literally the field presence in the data set that were surfaced in this journey. So we were really sure that through this journey that was built on top of what was already happening, we were really able to cater for any possible situation. Yeah. In general, one of the things that's happening whenever you're doing qualitative research is that a lot of the times you're getting biased results. And uh, sometimes the biased results has to do with the people who are willing to talk to you. Sometimes they have to do with people uh, who you can have access to. Like one of the examples that we have found, which was really interesting, is that whenever we were talking to somebody who, who was done from shop theft, was a victim of shop theft, every time we were talking to somebody, there were actually people who needed additional support. And uh, the reason why this is the people who we managed to talk to is the one who normally had a relationship with the police. So, for example, if somebody has no problem in general and got his shop, uh, a shop that the only reason we're going to contact the police is to get an insurance number. As a result, us finding people who are just having no relation with the police and had their shop that was very difficult. And that when we see the people we talk to, and then we looked at the data of all the potential variables that can happen within a journey, it became quite clear where were our gaps. As a result, we, uh, we knew what next we have to find out and identify to know, to understand the holistic picture. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite interesting because it's, I think, something a lot of service designers struggle with, like what to focus on. If you make journeys, you always have to make decisions on uh, which user you will focus on, uh, what are the most important phases that they, they go through. And then, of course, you, you always make uh, decisions and in making decisions, you leave out uh, a big part of the users that are uh, also important. So. I'm quite curious if you're still using this in in other projects, this kind of um, journey mapping exercise where you map all the data you have? Yeah, when there is the opportunity, we try to use this approach. I must say that it's often very difficult to get data clean at the right level in order to do this kind of exercises because a lot of the time the client just doesn't collect data or just collect data points that is very difficult to map back to a, to a full experience and to a full journey. So a lot of times, instead of seeing the picture of what is a long experience, you just see a very specific point of view on a specific data point. Mm-hmm. Also, for a lot of customers, or at least a lot of clients of us, it's not as important. Because whenever you are dealing with product companies or services companies, they have their customer segmentation. And based on their customer segmentation, they know who they want to go after. But in this specific case with the police, 
there is uh, for them there is no difference if you are in a very small percentage or if you are a majority because at the end of the day a victim is a victim and we have to look after everybody that's why i feel like in this project was really important for us to understand every complexity because let's say that for example you're a victim of uh, of domestic abuse and you're in this one specific peculiar place where you are having like you're a male and also the domestic abuse is uh, violent which is like the smallest minority of the situation you're equivalently as important as anybody else within this spectrum. So I feel like having applying this model for this specific project was uh, fundamentally important. Mm-hmm. So does that then also mean you create a, a one solution fits all, or are you still able to you know, make some things work better for this type of person and this work better for another type of person? Like, is that no segmentation at all or personas? Uh, there is uh, personas, there is segmentation, but what's happening is that at least this is what we did is we have created uh, user journeys with multiple variables and multiple possible scenarios that can go for most of the victims. And then out of this, we have extracted specific pain points that have to do on a specific and specific step on each journey for each one of these variables. So imagine it's like a journey that has multiple variables within it and multiple amounts set of pain points. And then we collected all these pain points and then we created solutions for each one of these pain, t- pain points. And we aggregated them into more general solutions as an overall and general kind of like requirements so that we can have a more holistic approach that's going to cater for everybody. In some senses, what we find out at least is that for each one of the journeys, you can have like up to eight variables for all the different complexity. It's just these small peculiarities that are, can play a different role uh, on what kind of requirements you can end up uh, creating. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So we heard a lot about uh, the research you have been doing, but uh, you also made uh, yeah, a lot of solutions for them. Can you explain a little bit more about what uh, came out of the uh, research and then the design phase and what you actually uh, delivered and what is now live at the client? Yes, uh, sure. I think that there is a lot. there has been a lot of solutions, but I personally feel there was one which was... I guess like my favorite one, which says a lot of things of how we understood it, which was the idea of uh, providing information around how police are, uh, what is the process of the police engagement in different crimes. And uh, this is basically a set of tools where you go to the Finland police, you search that something happened to you, like uh, any event can happen to you. And then the police is asking you for a specific more variations, like what is exactly happened within the spectrum of your event. And then they provide you step-by-step process how the police is going to engage with you. And uh, this came out because every time we were talking with most victims of either domestic abuse or mental health, is one of the major things that's happening is that there was a lot of misinformation of what the police is doing. A lot of people felt that uh, they didn't want to talk to the police because police is going to make a big deal out of it. And additionally, it's going to become public and uh, people are going to know about what's happening when in reality, police is much better in dealing with the situation. And uh, what we have created is a tool that comes from the police. It's not a misinformation that exists in different forums that people are discussing what the police can do, where you search and uh, we give you exactly the process step by step. And I feel like this is going to which is going to help a lot of people understanding exactly what's going to happen when they're going to contact the police and what's going to be their engagement. I think that was personally my favorite one. I can imagine this is a a very complex uh, tree of content. Like if this and that and that combination, then this is the 
the process that you need to uh, follow through. How do you go about managing such a complex set of content? Yeah, that's a difficult uh, question to answer. It's a long process, and it's a process that, in a practical sense, is never finishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you start, you're starting with accommodating the, like what we did, it was an information architecture issue. We started accommodating the major things that's happening to the place. So what's the procedure of shop theft? Uh, what's the procedure of burglary? What's uh, the procedure of murder and all the additional things? Now you have the basics. Then you go and you start identifying all the additional possibilities. So you have an interview within the process of the police and you start providing content. And then steadily and slowly, you start collecting all the potential procedures that the police is having. All these things are actually documented within the police. And the police has a very tactical way of approaching each one of the situation. And uh, to some extent, this tactical solution that they're having is actually being improved over the years to become better and better on solving these specific crimes, I guess, or helping citizens with dealing with all of them. And you just start recording them, cataloging them step by step, and then seeing what changes requires. And out of these changes that requires for each for the process of change, you start asking the question uh, to the public and the whole thing. But the idea with it is that this is still an ongoing project. So when we started, we had a good amount of it done to some extent. We can say that it was around like 30% or something like that. And the police is continuously working on updating the content more and more, more and more. It's a content strategy to some extent. And I feel like it's a never ending story that's going to keep happening for them. But it's all about just identifying all the different processes and then trying to find what change requires in the process to happen and what change requires to happen so that the process is going to change. And then you start collecting that part and uh, combining them together. Hopefully that answered the question. Yes. And did you already have some uh, results that were measured? For example, uh, more people with things uh, they didn't really dare to say to the police before they were talking about it or maybe less work for the police agents. Were there already some results of this uh, implementation? Yeah, there were already some results. I mean, when we went through user testing on this specific interface and interaction pattern already was testing really well because and was sort of ticking the box of and answering the question if uh, an online solution can actually solve some problems better than a phone call in the sense that a lot of people actually told us you know i would never call the police to ask certain things because i'm actually scared that the day after they would come in front of my place you know some sensitive issues people are quite scared and it takes a lot of confidence before making the phone call while actually having an information source coming from the police so that actually tells you what is going to happen when you feel ready to report is actually a much much more approachable step so yeah this worked really well and actually we've seen there were a few metrics that we were checking after going live and specifically like people started using the website straight after we launched it. I think the first report was one hour after the website was launched. In the first month, we've seen decreasing the time that people have to wait to get to talk with someone once they decide to call. So actually moving traffic from the phone to online makes the experience better also for the people that really need 
to call the police to talk with them for something a little more serious or for the people that actually need a voice on the other line um, to feel better about the report that they're making. Yeah, I can also imagine that's a significant cost reduction for the police force too. Yeah, that was like the main business case we managed to provide for them. It's an interesting thing though, because I think that it was both a cost reduction, but also a huge support for the people. Because a lot of people actually calling the police for a lot of matters, it takes much more time than dealing with it. Like for example, if you want to report a shop theft, and you can report it online and upload your CCTV. You can be done in 30 minutes and there is no need for the police to come over to collect the evidence from, take from your time and also take the time of the actual officer traveling to the place to collect the evidence. So there was a lot of significant cost benefits to the police and at the same time an improved experience. So that benefited both. Yeah, so, actually, the, I actually got the numbers. So to report an incident, it takes now to do it online six minutes instead of 20 minutes and the average waiting time to talk with someone is now two minutes compared to 12 minutes that it was before okay yeah that's that's a huge impact yeah it is. you were also saying at the start a member of the team was a, a business designer mm -hmm. i can imagine that yeah, this role is involved uh, in this part of the, the project. Uh, could you talk a bit about yeah, how does a business designer fit in into this part? Do they predict these cost reductions or measure it in the end? There is like a formula that you're using, and it's um, in general across different subjects. Every corporation or organization, like in this case, have the way that they measure success from their perspective, from financial standpoint. And so we are taking their formulas that they're having and then we are applying their formulas with what we think is going to be the reduction. In the case of this project, we have identified a lot of reduction that was related to the actual cost center. And so what we expect is going to be the volume of uh, calls that are not going to happen at the call center. And additionally, we made prediction for a rollout uh, up to three years. So in the first year, it's going to be less amount of calls than in the second year, there's going to be a little bit more in the third year that we're going to we're going to have even more calls. And based on that, we kind of like excluded and give them in a, a trajectory of what we expect to be actual savings that are going to be related to the call center. Mm -hmm. Then we have additional savings that were uh, related to the police force. That includes how many we expect of police officers are not going to have to travel to different places to collect evidence or do additional things because this can now ma be managed online and, and give them that savings as well. So when you have all this information, you have a clear indication how much money the police is going to save because afterwards you're actually asking money from the police to build the system. And it has to be, there has to be a cost benefit related to it that at the end they're going to, uh, we predict that they're going to get more money than they're going to lose on building the systems. And uh, that's pretty much what we were doing. And this is all very much closely related to all the different requirements and functionality that we're expecting to happen. And then, uh, the use of basic data and, uh, I guess, management of the actual cost of running each one of these requirements before the system is going to be applied and after the system is going to be applied. We had like a long Excel document explaining this. Hopefully that explains the process. Yes, it does. <laughs> I can also imagine that moving from uh, phone communication to online had a huge impact on uh, the roles of some employees um, at the organizations. Did you also uh, tackle this, like changing uh, job content um, of some people at the police? Yes and no. 
yes, it is, and it's going to change the behavior of police officers. But uh, there was an additional project happening uh, from Accenture at the time. They were actually trying to change the way that the offices are interacting. So mm -hmm. part of our project was to kind of like indicate what's going to be the result of having a digital system that the citizens can communicate. But I think that uh, another initiative within the organization played a bigger, a bigger role of identifying how the behavior are going to change from the police officers. So it was it was one of these things when it was, yes, we touched it a little bit, but there was a different initiative happening at the same time that was going in more detail of the result of this. Yeah, okay. But that was already happening when you were uh, designing the, the new system as well, or only when it got implemented? Uh, it was happening at the same time. Because uh, the police officer are going to get access to the system as well. And the police officer are going to be able to collect evidence digitally. So there was a lot of things that need to happen from that end. But uh, we were in collaboration with them, but it was happening simultaneously. Okay. Um, I also understand uh, you provided some uh, training to um, members of the police force. Can you talk a bit about that? What kind of trainings did you give? How many people? Yeah, actually, that was uh, it wasn't initially in the scope. But when we started bringing the data visualized back to the policemen, actually, when, when we first said it, there was a little bit of skepticism in the sense like, what does it mean you're bringing data visualization? Everybody was expecting something very complicated and that would make probably their job more difficult or would take a lot of effort to understand. But with it, when we actually brought these maps, these alluvial diagrams specifically, everybody got really excited because being them expert of this topic for them was very easy to read them and was actually also very easy to tell the narrative of what was going on through the data. So after that, uh, a few people inquired, so, you know, how did you do it? Is it difficult? Can we do it? And when they discovered that was actually a free software doing it quite easy to use, Uh, they asked us if we could actually explain it to them. So we ran the session with a few policemen that would have explained it to other people within the police. It was a little bit of introduction to the principles of data visualization, what are the main rules, how to do it, and then a little bit of practice. So uh, explain a little bit how to use the tool. Cool. That's uh, that's really nice when that happens. Um, we have a couple of colleagues who happen to be giving a spontaneous training today on, on uh, user testing and uh, <laughs> Maply, <laughs> uh, also because they really had the desire to to do that themselves. So that's really nice. Then you know, yeah, you've made a positive uh, impression. Hmm? <laughs> yeah. What I was uh, wondering, like at the moment, uh, the new website is live. Are they maintaining it uh, by themselves now? Are they updating content or are you guys still involved in uh, improving the, the service that goes towards the clients? At the moment, they're working on it by themselves. Mm -hmm. Also because it's quite difficult when you work in the public sector to maintain this engagement for a long time. Obviously, working with design studios is not always easy for public sector even on an economical perspective to afford the money and to be able to, uh, to justify to, to the public the money that is spent on doing these services. So it's quite difficult to keep up engagement going for something like 
for us has been because initially between research and development has been almost a year. And after that, now it's, I think, one year and a half, a couple of years. So we actually step back. We are in touch every now and then because obviously having worked together is quite nice every now and then to touch base and actually understand how things are going. Uh, but no, there is no work involvement at the moment on this service. Okay, so you won the uh, awards for this uh, project. What does that uh, mean for you, but also for the for the police, for your clients? That is, has been great for a few reasons, because initially, like as I told you at the beginning, it took so much work to get the authorization to share this project, especially, you know, the topic we're talking about, public's data. There was a little bit of resistance in order to submit it to a competition and, you know, saying actually what the police was working on but also waiting until it's live. So it took a lot of effort and basically <laughs> three different draft applications be- before I got the final approval. So it was a little bit of a victory to, to show that actually it was worth doing it. And I guess for the police, it was actually also very nice because it was a really an endorsement. You know, especially when you work in the in sectors that are not usually so involved with design and new methods, um, and, you know, with the digital attitude that maybe it's very common in certain environments in London, but when you go out in the real world, maybe it's actually quite difficult for some of those people to make the argument to use our methods and make and service design in contexts that are not the most common for a service design approach or are not just used to it. And I guess for them, it's really a confirmation that what they're doing is the right way and they're getting some results and the community uh, appreciate what they're doing. So, yeah, I think it's been a great endorsement. They were really happy and it was actually, it probably helped them uh, also within their organization to user-centered design even more than they did in the past. Mm. And uh, for you, Kostya, as a freelancer now, what does this award mean to you? I won, the one was won in October, so I haven't seen yet the result of it on my job. I'm going to start looking for the next project at some point, so it's going <laughs> to play a bigger role. I don't know. We'll see. But I think like for me, the, the most fascinating thing is that I can call myself an award-winning designer. And I think it's kind of a joke, but also it's fun to say that about yourself. So I don't know. It's a nice experience. I think it's, it's validating the work that we did. And for me personally, uh, this is my favorite project by far I worked in. And uh, the one that I put the most passion I have put in for and had a lot of fights to do the things that I wanted to do the way we did them as a, all of us together. And it was difficult to convince sometimes and getting the award. Now it's kind of feel like it was worth it a little bit. And also the fact that the project is life as well. Great. Maybe a final question. Do you guys have some tips for other uh, service designers that really want to dive into data visualization? Probably get to start getting their hands dirty and not be scared to show something that it's even a work in progress to our clients and really use data visualization and infographics in general as a way to find a common language with our clients, because if sometimes it's difficult to articulate what the data express, when you have the data visualized, 
it's really a good starting point to prompt conversation and to start from, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that, I don't know, at least from my perspective, is that it's really important to create a narrative because data visualization, part of it is that it feels a little bit scary. And sometimes people feel uncomfortable of showing things that really are, that seem to be more complicated or not familiar to them. It's have a clear narrative of what you're trying to explain and why the data explains it. Use specific examples, very straightforward examples for people to understand and make it in a way that is clear for everybody. And just remember that even if you're going to get some no's at the beginning, it's going to be worth going through it because the amount of benefits you get out of it is much higher than anything else. Okay. So, and if uh, people want to uh, find out more about you or get in touch online, where can they uh, find you? I'm on Twitter. My name Giulio Fagiolini. And happy to answer questions around the projects or share a bit more about my experience or even some more tips on how to use data in a service design context. Yeah, I am on Twitter as well, at Purofu, P-U-R-O-F-U. I guess, same thing. Okay, excellent. We'll uh, make sure we add those uh, to servicedesignpodcast.com. So if you listeners go there right now, you'll be able to find links to Julio and Kostya and see some uh, images uh, of the project. Julio, Kostya, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to talk to us about this uh, inspiring project. I learned a lot of practical things already that I know I'll be uh, using uh, soon. Thanks a lot and good luck with what's to come. <laughs> Thank you for inviting us. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk. It was a pleasure. Bye. Bye-bye. 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 The Service Design Podcast was brought to you by the Service Design Network and Night Moves. For more information, previous episodes, or to join the conversation, please visit servicedesignpodcast.com. For more information about the Service Design Network, visit service-design-network.org and for night moves, visit nightmoves.be. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to this podcast. The intro and outro music is from If the Stars Grow Dim Tonight by Hydrogen C, featuring I Will, I Swear. Until next time.